Hello, listeners. Today, we're gonna be pummeling all over your brain with a superhero brawl out. Or rather, just a geek out, because we're a bunch of nerds. And joining me in the Losers Club today is comic book artist Todd Purse and comic book nerds Super Inframan. Yes, he joined us in costume today. And if you did not realize by now, today we're gonna be talking about comic books and superheroes on a paranormal show. What most people don't realize is that the comic book medium itself is packed with so much mystical energy. It forces readers into the liminal spaces of their own imagination. It attracts the likes of artists and mystics. And most of the creators are very heavily into the paranormal and magic. Most of them imbue all of this magical energy into their creations. Sometimes they even incorporate themselves into their own storylines. And even sometimes they stumble upon their own creations in the outside world. So guys, today is Avengers Assemble, or rather, maybe us three are more like the Great Lakes Avengers. <laughs> I like that. So with me today is comic book artist Todd Purse. Hello. And comic book nerd Super Inframan. And you can also call me Saxon if you want. Yes, to. also known as Saxon sometimes. <laughs> Your alter ego. Yes, yes. You know, it was funny. Uh, we were talking about Soraya's show earlier. My handle online was Super Inframan. And I was like, you know, my name is Saxon. You can just use that. And he goes, but Super Inframan sounds cool. Yes. So. <laughs> Especially for today's episode. So listeners, we are going to be talking about comic book characters and superheroes and also comic book creators who seem to be encountering their own creations. Yeah. Now, I, I, I should be honest, like you two are the nerds here and I'm just a poser. I don't know anything about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, well, first off, I got to tell you, like, as somebody that loves comics, I think they're for everybody. So as much yeah. as you know, or as little as you know, that's totally mm -hmm. fine if you enjoy them at some point. That's what they're for. Yes. Yes. I because the, the medium itself allows you to fill in the blanks between the panels. Yeah. And mm. Offline, Todd, you made a great point about that. And uh, I don't know, I, I, would it be fun right now to kind of talk about some of that kind of magical meeting between like what comics ask you to do and how it functions as a medium as we get into yes. Yes, okay. I think that that's a perfect thing to uh, start the episode on so we can then go into the more weird stuff. <laughs> totally. Yeah, no, I, I had mentioned, and I'm pretty sure this is uh, Grant, Morris, Grant Morrison writes about this in Super God, so I cannot claim any originality to this thought. But the idea that comics ask a little bit more from the um, reader as far as imaginal participation and that you have these little gaps in between the stories that can transition you an hour or the next panel could be 10 years from now so you're constantly filling in these gaps and you know that's where this liminal interaction kind of I think has a little bit more power and it takes a little bit more as far as our investment than like watching a movie and it engages a different part of the brain than reading a book where we're kind of filling in all the pictures it's this halfway space the other thing I'll say real quick that has been really interesting is I've been uh, listening to a podcast about the history of comics and advertising and it has been one of the most effective tools in advertising 
watching for exactly this reason because of its engagement and how consistent it is in engagement. Same thing can be said with why it's still used for instructional purposes all over the place. So I think all of those things kind of uh, get to the same point that this medium has some kind of special uh, special relationship to the reader. It does. And, you know, the other thing that, uh, you know, I, I think we're going to talk about over and over and over again is how much all of these creators that are connected to fictional characters bleeding over into the real world whatever that means. I also had this sort of attunement to liminal or magical ideas or alternative, I don't want to say alternative, but like fringe topics and things like that. So they're open a little bit more to what might happen. Always kind of wonder if by existing in that creative space, if um, reality for yourself is not as defined. And so Mm -hmm. it gives you the chance to see these things out of the corner of your eye or have experiences where, you know, you run into Superman walking down the street or something like that. Absolutely. I, I, you know, Vuk, this is nothing new uh, from me to you, but mm-hmm. I think that artists are constantly touching the same thing that paranormal experiencers are touching. I, I, I heavily, uh, I guess, believe so a weird word, but I really do think there's something to a, a consistency in the two worlds, whether it's the same thing or not. But it is interesting how each of these people we've been talking about uh, before the episode all have not only strong artistic practices, but have really strong magical practices. And I don't know too much about all of them, but Grant Morrison's my favorite example of somebody who his uncle introduced him to like Crowley and comics at the same time at a very young age growing up in a very interesting place in Scotland during the Cold War with very active parents who were protesting the Cold War. So he talks about going to like underground bunkers as a kid and like going go, like having what he describes specifically as men in black showing up to the door very young and telling his dad that he will vanish if he doesn't stop doing what he's doing and stuff like this where like that combined with an uncle giving him uh, comics and Crowley, all is just this perfect uh-huh. amalgamation. So, yeah. so this is Grant Morrison? Yes. Yes, it's okay. Grant Morrison. So yeah. I had on my show Puxley uh, talk about his own experiences and once when he was in a bad place in his life, he did sigil magic based on what Grant Morrison shared about his own sigil magic work. Mm-hmm. And Puxley had a man in black experience as a result of the sigil magic. He had a lot of synchronicities related to 666. Mm-hmm. Uh, the man in black knocked on his door asking his wife for Stan, which he interpreted as Satan. Whoa. And this resulted in him getting a check for 6,660 pounds. Oh, wow. Yes. yes. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. I love so, that so, so, so much. So I find it interesting that people uh, that you are mentioning the men in black tie with all yeah. this stuff. And if you remember Albert Bender, he was heavily into horror, into scary houses, you know, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. He was also a, a geek and a, and a nerd, you know, apart from being a ufologist. Absolutely. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, with uh, Albert Bender, I, I love that, you know, his men in black encounters are not like G-men in suits, but people that, you know, vanished in smoke in his bedroom, you know, with a smell of brimstone mm-hmm. and, and things like that, where it's, it kept that like the feel of like, okay, I can't categorize this as like a, you know, nuts and bolts thing. And I can't quite categorize this either as just being a uh, magical or ghost experience. It's got this sort of like stretching quality to uh, all of the elements to those encounters. Yeah. And even his whole book, how he was taken to Antarctica and stripped naked and massaged by ladies. 
while the <laughs> men in black were interrogating him uh, that goes into a whole whimsical world that's amazing yeah and before i think we ought to dive into morrison quite a bit now but i, I want to throw out we'll, we'll talk about alan moore uh, as we go along too alan moore is a bit more i think traditional in some ways in terms of his approach to magic and i always sort of look at morrison as the the chaos magician and more as the very traditional thelemic or, or something like that with the uh, very ritualistic yeah ritualistic magic yeah. That's perfect. Thank you. Yeah, totally. I bought his master class, which is sort of like uh, some of the other, you know, little vignette teaching courses online and things like that. But the first thing he does, the first sentence he does when he introduces himself, he says, I'm Alan Moore, a warlock and a writer. <laughs> Even though it's it. a class on writing, he does not introduce himself as a writer. He says, I am a warlock. And the entire course is really about being a magician, mm -hmm. just using that to write comics. Okay, so when, when we were researching this, most of the anecdotal accounts we have gathered are from interviews with the creators, and it seems like they are always interviewed about their, you know, artistic endeavors, but they themselves constantly bring up this magic stuff or these otherworldly entity encounters. Like even with Gibson, when he was interviewed for just his writing, he himself brought up the haunting at Gay Street and its connection to the shadow. So it's like they always want to talk about these stories, regardless if that is the planned outcome of the interview or not. So, you know, you could surmise, I mean, this is just a random kind of side thought, but because I, I think these things influence each other and I think they yeah. can influence stuff that happens in you later in life actually influences things that happened to you earlier in life. If by making the point of mentioning these stories or these encounters, are you injecting some intentionality back into these encounters that they've had. I, I know that's a little odd, but uh, it's something that's crossed my mind more than once too. Soraya often brings that up where like maybe a future event's actually influencing what's going on with you right now. Oh, I, I think there's something to that whole time wibbly wobbly thing to all of this 100%. And I'll also say in regards to that idea is uh, Morrison in particular, I know, so he had a very spiritual experience in um, in Kathmandu. There was, there's a temple there, I believe, that if you run up the stairs and hold your breath and do all the stairs and once you you uh, obtain instant enlightenment so he did this and he uh, didn't feel anything different but then had an alien abduction experience and in that alien abduction experience that happened that night of running up that temple stairs he was you know visited by what I think he called like they're like silver blobby alien beings who essentially told him that he had to keep doing what he's doing that what he's doing with the invisibles and all the things he was working on this was before the invisibles was like a thing this is what kind of inspired the whole project he had to like put out to the world so it, he calls it his shamanic experience that he came back and he had to share with the world like it was it was not his choice as he will as he as he says and i think that that is echoed in other creators who have these type of experiences where they feel like they don't have a choice of whether to share this or not yeah but what i'm thinking is was he planning to cancel the invisibles or something because if he was doing that if it was you know being successful why would he have this entity encounter where they are encouraging him so this was before he did the invisibles this is what ins he was working on this for a long time and the idea of essentially the invisibles being a hyper sigil and inserting his chaos magic in folding it into the fiction world more and seeing the implications but he was very successful at this point in mainstream comics he had made like a uh, batman arkham asylum had come out he had he was rich he was like fine mm -hmm. so he always yeah. says like why would i share any of this shit it's not to make money i was doing great but then i like 
like started sharing these crazy experiences where I was abducted by aliens and like people already knew he was the weird one but he was mm -hmm. like I leaned in because I had to because this experience told me I had to so but w would this have happened if he was not al already famous and successful because if the universe needs a shaman <laughs> It's certainly not going to go for the homeless guy. <laughs> that's a good. Well, and that's even funnier because the invisible open the invisibles. The comic itself opens up with, a, I believe the character's name is Tom O'Bedlam, and he's the most powerful magician that the world's ever known. And he's a schizophrenic, schizophrenic homeless man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, it, uh, just uh, going back to Puxley mentioning the, the uh, sigil magic, you know, the invisibles Morrison envisioned as a hyper sigil. And uh, it's got all kinds of stuff that go on with it where the encounters that that uh, Todd's been talking about occur. It, it, it's mixed into the story of his real life experiences. The other thing, you know, when we were talking about Men in Black earlier, a lot of the uh, Archons in the story, I always assume were sort of a stand-in for the Men in Black as well. Did you get that, Todd? Absolutely. And yeah, so to jump, like that Men in Black story is one of my favorites because, you know, he, he knows that it was just federal agents coming to tell his dad to stop fucking around and protesting the Cold War. He knows they weren't Men in Black, but in his memory, they are the in black so like he mm. definitely inserted that into the um into the hyper sigil that was the invisibles and the invisibles is the one book that you've heard me talk a lot about where he eventually insert he inserts himself the whole time as king mob but eventually he starts um it, essentially the i believe it was a face-eating bacteria yeah. that the the villains made king mob think he had like psycho whatever the you know whatever the correct word there is um and then in real life like with Within two weeks of that story being published, Grant Morrison had a flesh-eating bacteria that almost killed him and sent him to the hospital. So he was like, "Oh, I'm going to be nicer to my character." And he wrote <laughs> in like he he wrote in that he his character met like the love of his life and started going to like bondage stuff and like all, all of these like really like big things that he had never done but always wanted to. And then like very <laughs> short succession, uh, fell in love with a lady that would take him to bondage clubs, and they are married to this day. <laughs> She's his manager, which is even funnier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the, the other thing that is really cool about like his whole he was not only meshing all of that stuff, but he was taking things like Dolce Underground Base and he put that that was the first time I ever read about that. Like and in his version of it, it was like run by the government and y they were trying to find the cure for HIV that was hidden in like the sixth layer of this underground base with all these aliens. And right, the right. whole thing. I mean, he has a trans he has a tra uh, excuse me, he has a trans superhero in 1992 that is involved in this whole thing that yeah. it's all like very boundary pushing stuff that mm -hmm. like even today would be like wow that's uh the the meshing of those mythologies and the the kind of cultural boundaries i think it all is part of why that hyper sigil worked he's kind of drawing from all this stuff his personal life pop culture weird esoteric underground stuff like all of it you know i want to point out the dolce based stuff also archetypally is dante's inferno the layers oh, of hell yeah. oh. that's one of my favorites you know I, I haven't heard that before i love that was that the 80s is that, is that the mm -hmm. 80s that, that came out? That was Benowitz and everything, right? Yeah, it was yes, Paul Benowitz, yes. yeah. Okay. Which, you know, I've talked about this on uh, Soraya's show. When you go around New Mexico, Carlsbad Caverns and some things are there. And Carlsbad has like the biggest great room in uh, the United States. And it's like seven football fields wide underground. Dang. And so you're like, it, it makes a lot of sense why they would start, you would combine, you know, these big ideas together. 
it's like an inverse tower. Instead of yeah. going up, you're going down deeper and deeper with every level. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It makes so much sense. When we were talking about, uh, I, I guess, you know, uh, this isn't super gods, I think, Todd, where does he get into there where he talks about like he and King Mob converging more and more? Not just the effects of the book, but like I found myself dressing more like King Mob. And yep. the scorpion you know, tattoo that he was demanded to get by the scorpion god. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. All that's that. right. Yep. Yeah, no, that stuff is beautiful. It, it is, and, I, and I, I'm really uh, curious about the um, attraction or magnetism that was going on there where, you know, obviously he, he already felt like he had to tell this story, but the fact that, you know, his fictional self and King Mob and his real self, you know, didn't just wake up one day and like the story affected him with the fleshing bacteria, but, you know, they they're almost seemed like they were on a collision course of life changes and things bringing them together. It, in my head that just adds to like the longer intentionality behind the magic of that yeah no i i think that is definitely on there and when you hear him talk about the invisibles you know he had those like six years of stories planned out from day one like he knew he didn't know the last line on the page but he knew exactly like where it was all kind of gonna go so like there's definitely and a lot of that came to him precognitively in that catman do experience like he just brought back that and kind of like knew exactly how this was on all gonna go and what's really interesting interesting about the way that he works is he has uh, sketchbooks and notebooks and notebooks and he draws out panel for panel like what he sees in his head to write the comic transcribes that to written word and then sends the written words to the artist to retranscribe into pictures and like I've never I never really realized but that's like a whole bit of like extra alchemy that's going on like to Mm -hmm. take it from image to words and then back to image is something that I think is he knows he's working extra magic there uh, and it's very intentional the other thing that I think is huge and why the invisibles worked and Vuk's probably tired of hearing me talk about this in a certain <laughs> way too but it, it goes back to Puxley too he probably read about the sigil magic in the back of the invisibles because at the letters section every month Grant Morrison would share like how to do sigil work and how to actually like practice these magic these chaos magic things he's talking about so like for the first time people that are used to just reading superhero you could get sigil work how to do it in a comic book store so this whole like market of people that has never experienced this is getting it and it's like oh i just cross out some continents and then like scare the shit out of myself or jerk off on this thing and here we go okay like yes. I, I, I think i think there's just and i think like to initiate the so the, i think there's something in the sharing of this stuff that makes the power of it itself work better if that makes sense and also the comic book as a medium allows you to share this stuff yet like you're not gonna be uh, talking about masturbatory sigil <laughs> magic in an academic <laughs> paper but That's because it's a comic sure. book it, it's treated you know as fantasy and sci-fi so it is the perfect medium where you can share this and always be like oh well it's just fantasy because it's a comic book yeah we know and as a medium comics are are proudly trash and i I mean that in like like being punk no yeah you know garbage culture it's my favorite (laughs) yeah yeah and and, you know it's almost disposable in a way even though you know we have a whole uh, industry around people that collect them and things like that but yeah i mean the the whole point of pulp magazines was that they are produced very cheaply you read them you throw them away (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is a great place in which to, if we want to just dive into it, Vuk, what we've been talking about and what you mentioned recently with Dr. Jack Hunter, that this seems like the perfect cultural area for these phenomenons and like this weird stuff, these anomalous experiences to happen. And when you look in like, okay, so the shadow, uh, mm-hmm. he, when I was just listening to that Strange Familiars episode and they talk about how he had a whole uh, radio show called Strange in which he just covered strange stories. Like, yeah, this shit just attracts. Like, it's where right. it wants to live is in the pulp garbage culture. And, and I love and it's, that. It's not just that. Like, Walter Gibson was into stage magic. He was a friend of Houdini. He ghost wrote a few books of Houdini's. And even after Houdini died, he organized the annual uh, Houdini seances where they were trying to communicate with him. Yeah. Wow, it's just amazing. He also authored over a hundred books on psychic phenomena, the paranormal, mysticism, all of that stuff. Apart wow. from him writing almost 300 uh, <laughs> shadow novels. I love that he would come up with so many different pen names and aliases just to make it look like it wasn't just him writing all of these things in one publication. <laughs> yes. right. Well, the, the man's output was... I mean, beyond prolific when you start taking all this into account, because one of the commentaries I saw talked about him being one of the most prolific published authors mm-hmm. of the 20th century. I, I actually have numbers here. So Okay, well, there you go. Yeah. He was writing up to 10,000 words a day. He oh published God. up to 24 novels per year because he published, he wrote uh, two novels monthly, and these were like a whole a novel length story of the shadow and then various different uh, short stories that he also wrote but under different names to make right. it out to be like various authors were doing this and somewhere somebody said like analyzing his books it would take like three people to write that book wow that's amazing with all the stories and he also i think held the world record at a certain time uh, yes. for his output like at his peak output he wrote one million six hundred eighty thousand words a year wow. oh and he held the typewriting world record for a time too right mm-hmm. that's that's so wild because he would have more than one typewriter set up too for his different stories and go between yes, them yes which is you know and then you uh like this is one of those things that like i love the story of this so much because you know you have that interview where they talked to him in the uh, the mid-70s that you mentioned earlier, Vuk, where he's like, well, you know, uh, the, the ghost of Gay Street, and I, I'm paraphrasing because he never actually uses that. I don't think he ever uses the phrase of the street name, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's supposedly haunted. They're seeing Lamont Cranston, who was the shadow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a psychic impression, not a ghost. Yeah, he he made a point that it's not the shadow, but rather the human persona, the alter ego. It's like saying, oh, it was Bruce Wayne. It's, it was not Batman. Right, right. What I love about that story is even though he projected or, or, or came back and said that it was the shadow or Lamont Cranston, the people that lived or, or that had the experience of seeing you know, this man in his evening clothes with his cape and his hat didn't know who that was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And not, and neither did Holzer at all. Yeah, and Holzer didn't either. And so, you know, you have these stories out there and it turns out that Walter Gibson lived in that place and, you know, obviously was a man consumed by his work, to put it mildly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even though he may have defined how that was attributed a bit more to being Lamont Cranston, like it makes so much sense to me. It sounds so right, doesn't it? And and this was in his old days. Like uh, this interview was in 1975 and was published in 76. It was right. for Duende Magazine, which I find... <laughs> 
silly. I think that's a whole magazine that was about the, you know, shadow novels and stories. But mm-hmm. Duende is, you know, a mythological fairy-like creature in Spanish-speaking cultures. That's so, you really know, weird. another mystical tie. But it, I find it funny. He was interviewed about his, you know, creative work about writing The Shadow. And all he wanted to talk about is psychic phenomena. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I find, found that he co-wrote the complete illustrated book of the psychic sciences. That's awesome. Yeah. I'd love to see that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll have to look for those too. I, you know, uh, as we're getting ready for the show, I had not realized how many books Otto Binder had contributed to on ufology and things like that as well. It, it you know, along the same line. Absolutely. And uh, I, I'm, I'm going to kick some of this over to you, Todd. But um, Otto Binder is different than Al Binder or Binder. <laughs> Uh, and, and Otto, his last name actually is pronounced Bender, I understand. I say Binder because that's how it's spelled. But I think sometimes people confuse them because you hear the last name Bender. It's in a certain period of uh, ufology and paranormal. Yes. And so it's it's easy to conflate them. But uh, Otto co-created Supergirl. He wrote uh, a big swath of Captain Marvel that we know as Shazam now. Uh, and his writing in that was very whimsical in a lot of ways. Like very... Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, like, like just all over really fun, almost fantastical. But the other end of this, too, is uh, he wrote, trying to think of the right word, uh, technical manuals. Yeah. And, which is, you know, this very opposite thing compared to, you know, uh, I'm writing books on uh, ancient alien theory and stuff mm-hmm. like yeah. that. <laughs> but, you know, that begs the question, if he did not have a day job of writing these boring manuals, would he ever be in a need to have such a creative outlet? No, and that's super common. Like so many comic book artists made their living doing like technical work. Like so a lot of these dudes had studios and a lot of their work would come in through like the military or mm. <clears throat> excuse me, other type of places that need to train. Oh no, I was gonna say one of my favorite uh comic artists, the only original art I own by him, uh, his name is Will Eisner, is a drawing he did like showing military people how to clean and change their rifles, which is something I have like no interest in at all. But <laughs> I wanted a piece of Will Eisner art and it sold really cheap cheap because it was probably something that most people that like Will Eisner weren't super into but a lot mm-hmm. of that that was very common for them to do that work for sure but yeah. Otto, Otto is one of my favorite examples of this like mishmash of like comics and super weird stuff because he also had well one he was like amazingly prolific I think he wrote like almost 5,000 comics or something like that in his yeah. time in, in the comics and before that he was writing like pulp stories like science fiction stories along yeah. with doing and he, he did a lot of comics based on experiencers anecdotes i can't remember which um uh magazine but he worked for one of the ufo zines i should have looked that up i don't know why i didn't look at that before we uh hopped on here okay so so you bring up something very interesting was he like creating stories out of anecdotal cases from witnesses both so it started completely fictional uh-huh. and then as he was researching to write more fictional stories he started uh realizing that the real life stuff is better than the fiction so he started depicting the real life stuff but but you see maybe he is assuming some kind of shamanic role because without him these are just some cases that would have you know been forgotten forever but he took a hold of them and he transformed them into a medium that can be more mass consumed absolutely and can remain you know within the pop culture yeah absolutely so think todd what you are doing now with rob christopherson with welcome ufo people you're Mm -hmm. taking these obscure cases and you are creating art out of it so it can have you know more uh, exposure with the masses and maybe you can keep the folklore alive 
<laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think that's super important because without those injections of creativity along these along these lines, then some of this stuff does get lost to the dustbin of history. Mm-hmm. And I, I think comics is a really special medium to preserve this stuff because of its liminality. I think it is inherently just this very, uh, again, this medium that is kind of like in between everything. It's never gotten full acceptance. I mean, it's gotten a lot. Like at this point, like comics are pretty accepted as far as literary pieces and stuff but there's still there's always this tinge of like you know uh, underground or subculture or something along those lines that that sticks around very similar to what happens with high strangeness or things that get really people that get really invested into these anomalous things what was that great quote from uh dr kripal that uh you dropped into our chat before we came on the show oh no no totally the the one where he and i'm gonna i'm not gonna quote directly but essentially he was saying that the paranormal needs the pulp to exist and express itself and they kind of are the same story writing each other and i definitely think that there's something Mm -hmm. to that and again that's something that i think vuk has a lot of really interesting thoughts on as well and it's it's funny because i know you haven't read any of kripal's books or you know i but it's it's very interesting that multiple people come to the same realizations independently. Right. So yeah. for, for Saxon, like I did an episode about the upcoming book, Deep Weird from Dr. Jack Hunter. Okay. And I suggest this idea that maybe there is some kind of elusive other, you know, there's a nucleus of the elusive other that has its own identity, but mm-hmm. it wants to keep its own identity hidden from us, but it wants to mingle with us. So it self perpetuates its own mythologization. It sends us down rabbit holes where we can create the masks that we tack onto it. So now right. we have this whole phenomenon with a giant thick crust around it of all the mythology and pop culture we have created for it. But deep mm-hmm. inside it is its true identity, which we will never uh, discover. You know, and, and, and just to kind of muse on that a little bit too, comics make a, a perfect outlet for that because, you know, it's image shorthand in some ways. You know, your characters, when you see them, you know everything you need to know about them by how they're posed, the colors that are on the uh, drawing, whether it's in black and white might set the tone, all of these things that something that's uh, the other translating to us and sort of trying to impart without being as specific could use very well. Mm-hmm. And also, like, I'm thinking now of the color schemes of superheroes versus villains. You know, superheroes use uh, yellow, blue, red. Villains use uh, green, purple, orange. So right. even with the color schemes, uh, you can use that as an archetypal symbol or trigger. Uh, one thing we talked about that I wanted to bring up as we're talking about these things finding pulp to... Uh, come through it you know it goes all the way back to the shaver mysteries with lemuria and the daros and mount shasta you have uh, robert howard in there writing conan which is is something that's really interesting too where uh, and of course the shadow after that but there's probably something about the evolution of these mediums that we could get into uh over time as well and why they change to be better avenues for sharing that aspect of the other okay i i want to quickly bring up so you all know rpj has been working for over a year on the <laughs> ufology tarot project 
Yes. Uh-huh. And you, you may know that he has a degree and background in industrial illustration. So mm-hmm. v- very meticulous, very precise, that type of stuff. So he uses that now, his uh, the hyper-focus to do amazing work on the ufology tarot. But I did a whole episode with him asking him, like, are you an alchemist? Because you are imbuing your intent into these cards and mm-hmm. creating talismanic objects. So mm-hmm. we can see that with comic books because of all the uh, focus and intent of the artist imbuing all that onto the pages via art the comic book itself can be you know a talismanic object and i think there's something particularly special about the medium of comics in that regard because of how labor intensive they are it is a slog to make a comic like i'll tell you like to actually sit down and do even a 24 page like especially illustration wise i mean writing is a whole other beast but like the amount of time that you have to spend at a drawing board especially for the people that we're talking about having these experiences there is so much creative energy and you know vuk we've talked about the idea of imaginal offering there is no greater imaginal offering or time offering than a comic artist or a cartoonist that's working on a deadline we're talking like (laughs) maybe working 48 hours at a drawing table so some of the other experiences that uh jeff kripal covers in mutants and mystics are things like uh barry windsor smith experiences which are much more kind of time warpy which is really interesting where he'll be essentially working at his drawing table and experience a like essentially blackout experience experience something that happens in the future and then he'll the the craziest part so essentially he's at his drawing table he what feels like falls asleep he says the drawing table disappears the page he's working on disappears and he falls into time he says and he views this whole scene of this girl saying oh that's a good idea and this guy saying something else and he comes to and he feels like it was more than a dream and he realizes that like five hours has has passed that this whole thing happened so cut to 10 years later that happens in london 10 years later he's in his new studio in new york city working for marvel still and he that exact scene that he saw in london plays out in front of him and it causes him to black out and have another time experience where he falls into a big black abyss of nothing Mm -hmm. that essentially he gets communicated that we are he's told that let me see if i can get this straight here he's told that they need time to grow things in and we grow things in time so that's why we're here and it's such a cool statement like i love that that's like the message he came away with from that especially when you look at comics as a whole they're just time panels little boxes containing time and yes like, I, I was gonna say that his blackouts kind of resemble those in between spaces between the panels where exactly. they are timeless liminal spaces they are yeah. in- you know what you're saying makes me think of us going back to talking about that circular aspect of people encountering their creations and then somewhere down the road someone writes them into the comic meeting their creation mm-hmm. or like we were saying earlier too about Walter Gibson when, when we're talking about Conan so uh, yeah. Todd the Smith guy is was an artist for Conan he was working on Conan during those experiences. He, he was the illustrator. Yeah. Okay, so yes. I think the, the creator of the Conan comic was also channeling Conan, who was demanding to be created into a comic character. Which is yeah. such a common thing with this stuff. It is so, like, it's so funny that that's becoming a through line of all of it. I mean, whether it's the Neil Gaiman story that, you know, we've heard told by RPJ on your show a little bit ago there, Vuk, or mm-hmm. the stuff I was talking about with Morrison earlier, that these yeah. silver blob aliens were like, 
you have to go tell stuff. Or my whole DMT visionary artist uh, story that I won't go into right now because I'm sure everyone's <laughs> tired of it. But uh, the same thing where a, a mantis entity tells an artist like you're the whole point of this interaction is for you to keep making art about this realm. So go do it. Get out of here. And I, uh, there's something to that. One thing, because uh, I, I, I want to jump ahead, but I wanted to throw out one other thing with Conan. You know, Howard, uh, what, the creator of Conan, was writing the pulp novels in the 30s or the pulp stories. I think he committed suicide in like, was it like 34 or something like that? Am I thinking right? Maybe I'm a date wrong. Right. He, he was young. And then Barry Windsor Smith drawing Conan uh, was like 70s and 80s. <laughs> 73 was that experience. So okay. 73 was the same year Alan Moore met. Or wait, was it the Alan? 73 was the same year that several of these instances happen in Mutants and Mystics because Kripal points that out. It's like okay, a magic okay. year. And, and the other thing that uh, I, I, I want to impress upon people listening to the show is think about, you know, we have access to all these stories now. We can pull them together. But, you know, did Barry Windsor Smith know that Conan's character was known for being, you know, something that demanded his creator to tell his stories where he's standing over? over his shoulder and making him go into a trance to like, you know, catalog what's being told to him. You know, he probably didn't. But somehow, you know, we have this character that just like when we were talking about the shadow earlier, where there's multiple mediums going on here that are incorporating the weirdness and the highest strangeness and the sort of uh, uh, sentient aspect of whatever this character is. It's very interesting how this character is just uh, tossed between so many creators throughout so many decades. Yes. So it's like when you mythologize the character who is demanding to be on image or on paper. Yeah. You just uh, create this fantasy world around him and then send him off to other creators to continue doing the same thing over and over again. But the character remains the same always. Right, right. Absolutely. I think there's something to that kind of handing off of creativity. And I, I think I mentioned it earlier in the thread, but the idea that like all of these things, whether it's the shadow or all these comic book uh, creations started as one media and transformed throughout culture and time to grow with the culture. So the shadow started out as a radio host. He was he was like the crypt keeper. And then he got his own comic or his mm-hmm. own pulp. And then he got his own comic. And, you know, Superman or any of these these uh, different fictional characters they go from one thing to the other to kind of grow with the the mythology of the time i think there's something to that liminality of these uh properties yeah, it's a different type of collaboration too right because one set of creators is coming along you know 20 years later and they're building off the work that came before them but they didn't get to collaborate with those creators that were there one on one 20 years ago and so I, I don't know if there's something about that layering that adds to the intensity of the effect that you're talking about but i feel like there should be something there that makes it it's like some metaphysical baggage that is imprinted onto the character. Yes. Yeah, Sorry, that's a great way to put it. Also, I wonder, like in ancient Greece, did people maybe stumble upon Heracles? Because their mythology <laughs> was, you know, their version of how we treat superheroes today. I think they probably did. <laughs> you know, I can't find anything that says that, of course, but uh, I, I have to imagine. But, but that's because the commoner was not writing history. You know? Right, right, exactly. So we, I- we don't have witness accounts from those uh, time periods in Earth's history. But like, if that was a thing, then this phenomenon is not necessarily tied to the medium or to, you know, the modern time. Mm -hmm. I I think, I don't think it's tied to the medium, but I think that it's probably just because some of the things we said about how accessible it is, it's probably where it comes through in such obvious ways uh, compared Mm -hmm. to, you know, other popular mediums now of 
movies and TV shows and and what have mm-hmm. you. But uh, I, I think there there's definitely something yeah, there. I think it's it's accessible by all art for sure. I just yeah. think that comic books uh, speak to some of this stuff a little bit in a, in a different way. But I was listening to an anthropologist uh, talk the other day about a new understanding of some uh, cave artwork in which the classical view is that it was essentially drawn as a documentation of daily life or things that were very important to the culture. But there's this whole new line of study that shows that these a lot of this artwork was created before, let's say, going for a hunt. They would do this piece of artwork before as a ritual almost to almost pre to precognitively have a successful hunt type of deal, like to get themselves amped up. And that makes so much more sense to me as an artist. Like, I I think documentation is one way that art is used, but I think there's this whole other way of it. Okay, so so it's focusing your intent and manifesting. It's essentially the secrets of the law of attraction. Exactly. I, I think there's, I think comics and like the, the kind of esoteric weird side that I really like about it with whether we're talking about Grant Morrison or Alan Moore, they all like they talk about these interactions with fictional characters. But what they really like to talk about is this stuff, the magic, the putting themselves into the fiction to change the real world. And I mean, I think there's something to that for sure. Oh, for sure. And you know that the masterclass I referenced earlier, right after Moore introduces, introduces himself as a warlock and then a writer gets into his concept of writing. And it is not a concept of writing of like, oh, we put words on the page to tell a story. It's this high-minded, very magical thing where he says writing is the same as magic. And it gets back to basically the fundamentals of how creating is magic. You know, if I put something down on a paper a hundred years ago, you know, we could, somebody could read it now and now my words have time traveled. And so he uses some different examples like that. He seems to approach all of his writing uh, as a magical process for himself, which is something that makes a lot of sense when you talk about Grant Moore, or excuse me, Alan Moore, had never occurred to me until I heard him say it that way. Yeah, absolutely. I want to point out, because I don't think that we... (laughs) explained it this obviously but because of the panel like structure of comics it's like you're just getting snapshots of the story your mind is forced to fill in the blanks with tv and movies you don't have that because they you know tell you the story from start to finish same with novels and books so it's like the medium itself tricks you into a liminal state into a state of missing time where you need to piece together uh, the the missing pieces and i'm thinking about let's say why there is no mysticism in the scientific world because in the scientific world everything is thoroughly documented you have so many dots of facts you know but the less dots you have the more you have in between spaces between the dots so you can connect them in various different ways Yes, I that's a great that. point. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting you brought up that because I was right before you were saying that, Fook, I was going to bring up the fact that in that same essay that Grant Morrison wrote about exactly what you're talking about, it, he also says that that's why the comic fanboy exists. That's why people are more passionate about this stuff is because they don't know they're experiencing magic. They don't know that they're being tricked into that liminal state. So they cling to these mythologies more than if you were just reading a, a regular novel or, you know, watching a movie or something. So that's really interesting. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it contributes to the almost like, you know, involving the reader, uh, but it almost feels, and I, I'm using this very loosely where these characters and these stories are viral in a certain way, because, you know, my participation as a reader gives me a, a little bit of a role in creating part of the story because I'm filling in those gaps. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I'd say it's like, choose your own adventure, but more like uh, interpret your own adventure. 
Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Hmm. That's a really good way of putting it. That's beautiful. Let's see. So let's talk a bit uh, about Constantine. Do y'all want to jump into all the people that have run into him? Yeah, I- I'll let you lead the way here because I really liked what you shared earlier with this stuff. So you know, the thing about Constantine that's fascinating to me is I-, I kind of like to look at people that have met him versus like people that have met Superman in some capacity because I think it goes back to a, a point you made, Todd, before we started recording when you were talking about, you know, more was deconstructed constructing heroes and giving them like tremendous character flaws, making them people that you didn't want to be. And then looking back at Morrison talking about, let's take the best ideas of what it means to be a superhero. And that's what's imbued in Superman. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the guys that ran into Constantine, which also I think Moore calls it, he calls him Constantine. So just for uh, respect of Moore, I'll call that out once. And I'm probably going to say Constantine the rest or Constantine (laughs) the rest of the time now. But um, oh gosh, which is one of the creators that ran into him basically said, I saw him across the bar. I didn't want to talk to him because what could be worse than being a friend of John Constantine? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's when we're like, oh, okay. But it it adds, you know, Constantine's sort of a horrible person in a lot of ways. He does good, but he's not really, you know, heroic in any way, shape or form. He basically does the right thing out of a, uh, a burden of getting himself out of some other trouble he's in. Yes. But, you know, as we've talked about magic, my favorite encounter was not Moore's first encounter, but his second encounter with Constantine. And most of the documentation I find on it is just him, you know, being in like a dark place and Constantine comes out of like the darkness and lights a match. But I have heard some versions of the account that hint that he was taking a break from a, a magical ritual upstairs and went downstairs outside or you went to a, a dark room to smoke a cigarette. But Constantine basically says to him, you know, the secret of magic, any old cunt can do it. <laughs> and then he disappears. That's perfect. Yeah. I love that. That's so good. It's cool. And, you know, uh, Jamie Delano that ran into him as well is another person that's like steeped in magic and what have you. I'm trying to find my notes here while we're talking. And it was while he was writing the character. He thought he saw the character outside of the British Museum. Peter Milligan, I don't know as much about uh, in his real life, uh, saw Constantine outside of a party in 2009. And he tried to chase him down, apparently, but he disappeared around a corner. I love his work on ecstatics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that the last what I was telling you about in the Chicago bar, that was Brian Azzarello, where he was. Oh, yeah. And here's the exact quote. The thing about John is the last thing you'd want to be is his friend. (laughs) (laughs) But it's fascinating to me that we've got so many people that have ran into Constantine that worked on the character. And then, you know, if we go to like Morrison or Alvin Schwartz or some of these other people that they met Superman or something that stood in for Superman. I don't don't remember now, but I did read somewhere that Constantine, the type of character, he is the type of character who would more easily find his way between the imaginal and the objective real because he himself, you know, goes between our world and hell. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's interesting you bring that up, Vuk, because that kind of also fits with like Flex Mentallo that oh, uh, yeah. Todd mentioned earlier and, and Morrison's take on that Superman that has this sort of Silver Age, I don't know, fuzzy reality sort of quality to him oh it's the best it's i mean okay so all-star superman is by far my favorite superman for sure and the the story behind how he was inspired so essentially like after the invisibles which grant morrison views 
used as a very positive uh, hyper sigil that he worked. Like he felt like not only was the magic successful, but he imprinted something positive into the uh, you know cultural imagination. And from there, he got really, really depressed and down on himself because he didn't know what to do. Um, and he started, he, even though he was married and everything and fell in love and all that stuff, he started realizing that he wasn't telling honest stories for everyone in the world, that there's a darkness to the world that these superheroes can't deal with. And he started writing this book called Filth. And it was essentially like the invisibles, but the really dark, dark, gritty, like very depressing side. So coming out of that is All-Star Superman, where he realized essentially, and there's a whole other mystical experience that he has that is way too convoluted to try and retell right now. But <laughs> essentially, a scorpion god told him that he needs to go back to the fucking light and start bringing joy to the world again. So uh, he decides to, to do it. He gets the opportunity to write um, Superman for the first time at the same time. And he wants to make this like uh, Saxon said, like Silver Age, very, very a human Superman that is more positive than a authoritarian godlike character. So he's walking down the street with another creator. I can't remember the other comic Mark Wade. with. Is it Mark Wade? Okay, yeah, I was going to say it, but I didn't want to sound like a dummy. That's amazing. <laughs> You're right. But it, it just to add really quickly, uh, Mark Wade is like the encyclopedic guy of comic books in a lot of ways. He is incredibly creative, but he's not the guy that you would ever look at and accuse of being someone that's into magic or the esoteric or anything like that. He just loves to tell comic book stories. And so having him with Morrison in the experience that you're about to recount just makes it even more... I, I don't know it, it, because Mark Wade's like an everyman in an awesome way. As opposed, that's to why I didn't want to totally. That's why I didn't want to say Mark Wade because I was like, it couldn't have been Mark Wade, was it, Mark? <laughs> Wade? I guess, it, but you know, it totally was. So that's even better. But yeah, so essentially, they see a dude that's dressed up like Superman, and Mark Wade is recounting the story, and he's like, it's not just like your everyday cosplayer Superman. Like this guy is to the nines. He is doing it. Like he is Superman. Like they're looking at this guy, and Grant looks at Mark, and he's like, well, we gotta go ask him. Some questions right like i'm about to write superman i need to go ask superman what does he think of batman what is he like all of these just very basic questions so they go over and the guy answers this whole slew of questions just the never breaks character is superman the whole time and like that is what the nutshell that's where the nutshell of all-star superman came from is this interaction with superman that they ran into on the street and he was sitting there's this iconic cover of the first all-star superman where superman's kind of sitting on a cloud like holding looking very like peaceful and reflective and he said the whole thing is mimicked off how this guy was sitting on a rock looking out over the water and i'm like that's just so perfect like i love that and he goes from there to it pretty much say that superman is seen as this father figure throughout comics so he's going to make this whole story about like finding comfort within that story of uh, having a dad and like it's just a, a beautiful way to come at superman it is and you know one of the other things about that experience um that i love too is eventually the guy that was superman in that they found him yeah. and he didn't say too much about the experience other than he just stayed in character the entire time i always found it really interesting too how this guy that loved Superman, that was dressed like Superman, that was built like Superman. I mean, he, you know, muscular. He's not wearing fake muscles or anything like that. Found himself taking on that character sort of spontaneously like that as well. Yeah, I wanted to say like some kind of supernatural embodiment.
embodiment. Yes, yes mm-hmm. exactly. exactly. It's like when uh, people uh, do theater performances dressed as certain characters, they can embody characters. And especially if it's like a traditional or maybe, you know, with indigenous cultures, when, when they have these dances where they're embodying their own di- deities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's sort of that type of thing. It is. I hadn't Absolutely. thought about that. That makes a lot of sense, Fu. I just, I love that these things seem to pop up when they're needed. I just love the timing of it all. Like, it's just it, it, all the synchronicities and the the serendipitiness of it all. <laughs> yes. Right. And, it, and it's the really interesting contrast of why do we want Superman to be real? Well, you know, he uh, is going to make sure, kind of like you're talking about the father figure, right? He's going to make sure everything is all right. I mean, he's the savior always. <laughs> he is. He is. He, he's, he's the uh, four color secular savior. So we we are all, you know, yearning for salvation, mm-hmm. for someone out there to save us. Okay, and I'm going to just throw this in because I know that, so Grant's whole, or uh, Grant Morrison's whole point with this was to rethink that we deserve a better idea of what a superhero can be. That even this like beautiful, idyllic picture of Superman that he creates throughout this comic is not good enough and doesn't live up to like, like it's not the end. It's not our savior. Like the mythology and the idea of the superheroes are our savior, not superman and i superman. thought like i yeah like and i love that because i think you know i believe heavily that culture and mythology shapes the world around us uh, from a very personal local level as far as you know the stories you tell yourself on a daily basis to make it through to you know what a culture accepts as the general mythology changes the rules and structure and play and one of the things that grant morrison's always talking about is fuck playing the adults game war you know all of this like big money stuff that's the adults game let's play our game let's play yeah. the imagination game because the imagination game is what's going to win in the long run they just don't know it yet <laughs> right right mm-hmm. well and that's like the real plot of flex mentallo too right yeah absolutely I, i'm going to spoil flex mentallo for the listeners and i apologize but it 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 just so ties it beautifully with what you said the villain of flex mentallo is the i'm too cool to read comics 13 year old angsty idea of what an adult is supposed to be and in the context of the book the main character or i say the main character the main character is flex but he was the creation of a child who was now a a guitarist in a rock band i think is implied in there who's overdosed and he may or may not be dying and he's on the phone with the suicide hotline or trying to get help and uh the whole course of the book is flex trying to find him to save him flex comes into the real world and it's so powerful to have like this child's seven-year-old creation you know something he made when he was seven years old be the thing that comes and saves him when he's an adult that's you know potentially in the uh, process of taking his life and the bad guy is this angsty 13 14 year old like teenager version of himself and there's this beautiful line in there from um oh i'm sure he's a stand-in for morrison too the guy that does all the uh, illusions todd oh oh what's his name oh man that's gonna really bug me yeah it's, uh oh, i'm not gonna come up with it i'm not gonna I'm, but yeah i'm not gonna he basically it. says something like only a child would like think this is what maturity is actually like or something like that and I, i'm saying <laughs> i know exactly yeah no, I know exactly what you're talking about. But that that's the whole theme of the book. And uh, I don't know. I, I would encourage everybody to read that too. If you don't have time to read The Invisibles, go read Flex Mentallo. 
and he just gave me goosebumps saxon like that was such a good retelling of that because it's exactly and so anyone that's read grant morrison's work especially along those lines will know that like it can be confusing and like not it's not linear it's messing with time and stuff so it's nice to have that little nutshell summary there because that's it's a yeah it's one of my favorite books ever and it's only it was it three issues four issues or something three or four and and it's pretty easy to find digitally on comiXology too it doesn't take long to read through totally but there there's some great moments in there where people are sort of remembering their potential in different ways not in a motivational speaker sense but in a a very like cosmically aware (laughs) sort of frame Mm -hmm. absolutely it it is a a fascinating book and usually if i don't have time to get people to read all-star superman i'll give them that one that's great and it's all it's his like one of his first works too which is really cool to see that like these meta narratives and like this this different way of thinking about the world is in there from the beginning and i but uh, they talk a lot about infecting the world with ideas and memes and as viruses i'd say grant morrison's been very effective at that i I would too i would too and todd i'm still pondering about that whole uh superman encounter because that ties into your idea of the trigger effect yeah absolutely for those who do not know todd and i discussed a few times about let's say venus flytraps how they have those hairs inside but the hair needs to be touched two or three times in order to trigger the venus flytrap to actually you know close up so it does not lose energy and i'm thinking you know of this event so it required these two comic book guys to be out there seeking their own superman it required this guy to be out there uh dressed uh, you know as superman or looking like superman being in that uh, mind state Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. them yeah. stumbling upon each other to trigger this weird ass event where this guy was just compelled to assume the persona of Superman for whatever reason. Yeah. And probably he does not even understand why. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. He becomes like an avatar or a channel. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, that would be, that's exactly what it is. I think this is all such a great kind of example of that being that pretty much everyone we've talked to has this strong creative interest with which is this one form of, I guess, magic, for lack of a better word, in itself. And then they also have this interest in the strange or the esoteric or the magic. And with those two things, you know, combined, there seems to be some really, uh, I guess, exciting results. And maybe that's why, like, not every comic book artist is going to have these experiences. Not every, you know, author is going to have these experiences from the pulp times because it kind of takes both. It takes the interest in the strange and in the different worldviews, and it takes the creative juice if that makes sense. Right. And, you know, I've always been fascinated if uh, Jack Kirby had any experiences like this because... Because he was a very stern guy. (laughs) (laughs) Jack was like, he he, he was so prolific with the amount of art he would put out. And as he got further into his career, things got more and more creative and more and more out there, you know, and, and told in these really bold, abstract ways. And if you take Jack's work as a whole, and I truly do mean as a whole, there's a story that runs through all of from the beginnings of creation through prehistory with like Moon Boy and Devil Dinosaur being like mm-hmm. hominids. He did an adaptation of 2001 A Space Odyssey that kind of gets into the some of the, you know, uh, Black Obelisk mythology that he adds on to like Seeding Life, The Eternals, which, you know, yes. I actually didn't see the movie. I refused to watch it, but you I know, haven't he, seen it either, Saxon. No, so yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the Eternals really too was a follow up in some ways to the New Gods. And the New Gods was a story about the old gods dying in all of these uh, aspects 
being re-embodied in a place that's somewhere between something alien to us in a very like science fiction sense and something very like cosmic or biblical where those yes. ideas meet together. And uh, th- that stuff is some of my favorite. And it, he was he some stuff so ahead wrong. of his time. Oh, yeah. he was, he was. And then towards the, like he, he wrote sequels to new gods with like, um, oh my gosh, what's it called? I'm trying to remember, but it's about Orion's son still dealing with dark side. Oh um, yeah. But uh, it's, There's um, so oh, like, you know, major, not major victory, but like major Cody or commander Cody and the such and such soldiers. But anyway, all of his work started to become very, uh, metatextual and very symbolic and cover this whole span of creation. I want to point out that most listeners may think Jack Kirby was just the artist, not the writer. But the thing is with the Marvel methods, the artist mm-hmm. was the one constructing the storyline because uh, they left the artists to do the art and then the writer would insert speech bubbles and the text. Exactly, exactly. And then on some of like the new God stuff and things like that, like it was totally his too. Like, mm-hmm. uh, so there wasn't even somebody like Stan coming in to, uh, you know, add speech bubbles. It was all Jack. That's always interested in me in the progression of his career. Like he has, let's say he's really put his, his time in as far as, you know, doing the imagination exercises he created or was a giant part of creating the mythology that is like the biggest thing in the world right now. Like when you talk about modern mythology, like Jack Kirby is at at the center of all of it but then like after he like it was so successful with all of that he goes and turns to things like the new gods where you know exactly what saxon is saying like he's talking like mashing you know old roman greek gods and uh, and christian gods and aliens and all of this crazy mythology stuff like lots of things that people definitely didn't expect him to be putting out after his success with the regular marvel stuff yeah. and it's real interesting like what his motivations were to go down that road for sure oh yeah j- just as an aside uh, I've got a tattoo of a mother box on my rib cage. Ah, amazing. <laughs> wow. The mother box in New Gods is a, let's call it a device. Or I, I hate to call it a computer, excuse me, a computer <laughs> because it kind of limits it. But it was something that the gods carried that connected them to like the source of creation. <laughs> and it would answer questions for them a little like Siri. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was something very grand and, and hard to convey in words. And so my sigil practice, when I do it, I, I do this rarely. I have a little circle in the middle of the tattoo and I will draw whatever sigil I've got with a Sharpie or other marker inside of that uh, circle. That's awesome. And then just wait for it to fade over time. I love it. That's so cool. That's fun. It, it's, uh, I don't know. Kirby's my favorite. We won't go off on this too much. I, I want to throw the story out here though, because I, some of the things you've talked about creativity made me think of it. I talked about this on Soraya's show. I did ketamine therapy. And so I got to go in a clinical setting and have somebody give me ketamine for an hour, six times, or a couple of days apart. So, you know, I was definitely trying to have my Morrison Katmandu experience in there at some point. <laughs> <laughs> which I didn't happen. I, I put the call out there and nothing showed up for me in that regard. But, uh, you know, as, as you're going through it, like it felt like the last 20 minutes of the last session, it was almost like, okay, well, we've addressed everything now. Uh, let's go do some cool stuff. And it was like, I was along for the ride. Uh, Jack Kirby was standing there with the universe passing through him, almost like a focal point or something. And then spreading back out as it came out of his chest. It was wild. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it was neat. It was really neat. You know, we haven't talked anything about Neil Gaiman. That's also true. Should, That's should we knock that out real quick? I know we're, we're already at an hour and... <laughs> Sure, sure. We can talk about that. And this is the one that the story you and RPJ talked about uh, with uh, Charonzon. I, I yes. think I'm saying that right. 
Is that, does that sound right? Or is it Corinzon? I don't know. Corinzon. <laughs> I've, I've said it both ways. I have no clue which one. I bet it's Corinzon. Um, I go with the one Vuk says. Yeah, me too. Let's go with that. But it, it's in the, the book Dust Jackets. Dave McKean, who did the covers for the Sandman series, put this together. And the whole section starts with actually retelling Moore's encounters with uh, Constantine. And then it goes into his McKean's and Gaiman's encounters with characters that they worked on. And uh, the Corinzon the one that uh, is so interesting to me you know, he's at a party. This character shows up and starts talking to him. He thinks the guy's in a costume that just looks amazing. And he's like, no, like I'm, I'm really Karanzan and I mm-hmm. really need you to write me into another story and insinuates that this has to happen for him to continue to exist. And so uh, Gaiman ended up doing that. But if you'll go look at uh, Dust Jackets, the art where they're retelling the story from Gaiman, uh, he doesn't look like Karanzan in the Sandman comic. He looks like John Keel. I, I was wondering about that. Why do you think he looks like John Keel? <laughs> I don't know. I just, I would love to ask uh, Dave McKean about that, but like it's, I think it's intentional. It looks awfully intentional hmm. uh, because Karanzan in the actual comic is like a, a purple guy with two mouths and looks a little bizarre. And yes. Interesting and <laughs> very exotic. whimsical. Yeah. Very, yeah, very whimsical. whimsical. And uh, you know, this character that uh, McKean is using to illustrate him, it looks like John Keel with two mouths. I mean, <laughs> spitting image. And so there's something there too. I don't know if that just means that McKean was a fan of Keel and decided to portray him that way. But you know how John Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecy, starts off as Beelzebub visited Point Pleasant, the bearded He's stranger. Red black. Yes. yes. Oh my gosh. That's the best. Dude, so one thing on that, does Dave McKean cover his death sighting in there? Because that's one of my favorites that's associated in, in all of this. So he actually covers it right before he uh, portrays the, the Gaiman encounter with Karanzen. I was actually going to get you to uh, talk about it. Well, if you have it right there, you should totally cover because I don't have it in front of me. I will just preface this for like, Vuk, if you don't know or for the listeners, death in the Sandman world is like a goth teenage girl who is just one of my favorite characters in the whole thing so mm-hmm. but yeah if you have it right there you should go ahead and tell it there uh, yeah, let me uh there. let me pull it up I, I screenshotted some of the uh comic pages earlier today and w- while you're pulling it up i'll say one other thing w- with kirby in mind in particular and i think relates to people who work both in the world of comics and the Fordian or the the strange the paranormal is someone like Kirby's a great example who was amazingly successful in a bunch of ways but is also kind of a tragic character like he got fucked in a million ways too and like you know it took till till recent days to unfuck him in a lot of ways and that is not a uncommon story for most comic creators especially when we're going back to times of Kirby or Barry Windsor Smith or or even like you know someone someone working in the pulps and stuff I'm sure there's lots of injustice going on for the artist and I think that parallels what happens to people working in the paranormal in a very similar way oh that's a good call out yeah <laughs> I, I just saw Wally Wood's name sitting above me on a comic book and i was like oh the best comic book artist who died alone with absolutely no money doesn't that sound familiar (laughs) you know one of uh, superman's co-creators was like selling tokens subway tokens when he passed away yes yes i mean these these men all died penniless for the most part Uh, jack uh, depending on who you talk to, people will say, particularly Terry Stewart, that was head of Marvel Comics, takes credit for getting him a, like a stipend in his later years. But the people I know that knew Jack always go back to Image Comics, particularly like Rob Liefeld and Todd McFarlane, making a point to publish new work from him. So, and this was when Image had just hit in the early 90s and they were selling, you know. It was a payday. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because Jack got all of the money. 
you know, there was mm-hmm. nobody else that took any of it. It went straight to him. And speaking of people who were fucked by the industry, Steve Ditko. Yes. Oh God. Yes. One of the big, biggest visionaries of the, uh, of the time, like a psychedelic artist to the best degree possible. It's, it's so interesting how so many people that touch this world. I mean, and it's funny because the ones we've talked about the most, like Morrison and Alan Moore and stuff, they have, you know, not great examples of this, but, uh, but there's so many that really dabble in both worlds and get screwed over it seems yeah yeah i also wanted to point out with keel apparently he when he was in the military worked on either pulp or propaganda magazines stuff like that oh okay but also he started off not as a ufologist but rather as a demonologist and he uh was looking into stage magic and actual you know mystical magic his first book from the 50s jadu is Uh about his travels around the world in asia mostly uh, seeking these mystics learning about their magic tricks and that's an awesome book too because it i, I honestly think keel is the real life indiana jones um uh, and the <laughs> fact that they have not made like a streaming tv series about his adventures um, i'm like you're, you're somewhere between indiana jones and like kolchak the night stalker there's there's an awesome <laughs> story to be told there okay uh you reminded me so speaking of indiana jones wannabes robert ripley who was also oh, yeah. a comic book artist uh, oh, nobody really right. mentions him that's, that's true, true because uh, the Ripley's Believe It or Not pieces are always like mini strips too. Oh yeah, I have here a whole book which is uh, full of his comic strips. Oh wow! That's and no, nobody really ever men- mentions him as a comic book artist. But, but yeah, that thing was syndicated everywhere too. That's a great call out. Oh, so I've got the death story here. Oh yeah. Um, and there was I lost something else in my head there that was more of a reply to Voot, but I'm, my brain is just blank. <laughs> let, let, let's start off death here. So this is Gaiman's writing in Dave McKean's book and it's Dave saw her once referring to death on a plane in San Diego. It was a most unpleasant journey. A passenger on the plane from London had a fatal heart attack forcing the plane to land while the body was removed. The living the living passengers were forbidden to get off. And there was one of your fans on the plane, said Dave, when he told me about it several weeks later. Yeah. You know, this is them going back and forth on the phone or something. One of the girls in black with an onk, he said, I'm not doing a good job of reading this, y'all. One of the girls in black with an onk, he said, Dave is a very practical person and not giving to odd fancies such as believing in people he knows perfectly well were made up. But, you know, the the implication of this, if you can see the art with it too, uh-huh. is that his depiction of death, like Todd was talking about as being this like teenage goth girl, uh, was the one that was allowed to get up and get off the plane or something like that. Nobody knows yeah. to get off as the body was being taken off of the airplane while everyone else is still sitting. Anyway, that's, I, I don't know. It, it is interesting to me that you have like the endless and these encounters with the endless, the endless being like Morpheus and uh, death or Karanzan. And then looking at like American gods. Uh, did either of you read that, that game in wrote? Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it, 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 the, all those gods are tulpas. <laughs> <laughs> exactly no it, it, they they travel with the cultures and it makes so much sense and I, I think that's why comic books are such a great medium for this stuff like the fact that uh, Neil Gaiman is taking all of these works of past like mythology and literature like Sandman is just an amalgamation of references I did not understand when I first read it you know what I mean like to go back through and like pick out like the actual like the different names he's borrowing and the different stories he's borrowing from he's just building on this giant previously built mythology mythology just as if you were taking over for superman today but he was doing it on all these you know ideas and stories that have existed forever exactly and i always kind of wonder if american gods is his way of giving you his theory of how uh these things exist that's a great point i never thought about it like that but i think you're right okay guys well 
This was very wonderful. <laughs> I like how we just had a chat. I, I was thinking this is going to be, you know, a superhero brawl or something. <laughs> but we just chilled for an hour and a half, just nerding out. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah I feel... The, the, Go ahead, Todd. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I feel great about it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I mean, you know, we could have done, like, the fight, then team up move, but, uh, you know, I prefer Classic. the old days when Superman and Batman just saw each other and they were, like, buddies. So Yeah, no, me too. They they form, they, they're necessary for each other. I, I, the whole, it's so, so not to get down a whole nother Grant Morrison rant, but it's something that is my favorite thing he talks about in Super Gods is how the idea of comic book villainry changed and like that deconstruction of making, of blurring that line between the bad and the good and all of that really didn't do anyone any good. And the, the reconstruction, people forget that deconstruction is important, but you must reconstruct too. Yes. <laughs> Yes, uh-huh. exactly. So, exactly. yeah, I, that just reminded me because I feel like this was a very, you know, we were constructing off each other the whole time and much less of a deconstructing of anybody. <laughs> I, I was reminded how Jordan once said that I am the person who will take your sensibilities, rip them to shreds, make paper mache out of them and construct bridges because bridges are liminal spaces. That awesome. <laughs> That's yes. absolutely appropriate. That's perfect. Well, thank you guys so much. This has been great, Vuk. Thanks for doing this together. No problem. No problem, man. And I'm loving how we kind of emulated Soraya's show today. With yeah, you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I usually read a little bit better on Soraya's show. I apologize about that. My screen kept going black on my iPad when I would be like two sentences in. <laughs> like, uh, no it. worries. <laughs> well, uh, Todd, where can people find you apart from yeah. my show? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Hopefully here a lot more. Uh, CreateMagicStudios.com for all the artwork stuff. I'm at Todd, D-E-8-5 on Instagram. And yeah, the podcast is Create Magic Pod. And Saxon, I'd love for you to appear on my show much more. <laughs> I, I'd love to do that. And I, I think I can now. We're a little bit better with our schedules these days. My, my yeah. wife and I have been really busy for a while. Oh, yeah. So. I'd really like to go into uh, Kaiju with you. Oh, I'd love to do that sometime. Mm-hmm. So, so where can people find you? So, apart uh, from Soraya's show, uh, apart from Soraya's show, which I'm grateful that I'm a part of that show. I don't know why somehow Soraya likes me and keeps having me back. But I'm on Instagram, Super Dash Informan. Uh, I'm also on Mastodon, um, and also Saxon Williams is on Facebook, I suppose. So, Ooh. those are the three places you can track me down. I I don't get on Facebook very much, but um, if you need to track me down and you can't find me somewhere else, that's that's perfectly fine. Okay, well, thank you guys for doing this today. This was very interesting, uh, and I'll, I can't wait to pick up all of these little tidbits when editing. And oftentimes, when I edit episodes, I I hear so much information that you know just got past me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, well, this is awesome that's because, the best part. Yeah, yeah. Chris Ernst and I talked about doing a series about different creators. I don't know. At some point, there's a book here that needs to be written that's sort of a kind of like a companion or thematically added on to Super Gods or something like that. So maybe maybe the three of us and some other people need to talk about that happening. Yeah. I like it. Okay, well, until that happens, listeners, everything will be in the uh, episode description. Go seek out Todd and Saxon for your own shows uh, if you want to geek out like we did here. And until next time, bye-bye, guys. Bye. Thank you. Bye.